Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. Okay, I'm, I'm studying at uh, UGM, doing my master's, and my name is David Piri. Uh, okay, I just know that the, the, they must have a best education to say. And I still believe that as a welfare state, they also pr- still they continue to provide bursaries for their students and uh, scholarship for their students. I, w- I also believe that uh, also it is a capitalist uh, country, therefore uh, free education is not possible. However, we see that in Germany. I think uh, it's a it's, it's a good move for students to to obtain such uh, privileges uh, such as free education. Because you have to understand that in the 21st century, the, uh, not everyone is able to pay the fees that the institutions demand. Therefore, it's crucial for the state to step in and help students to go to school, you know, and, and stopping capitalists and know that we are the one who put them in position. So things like rent and fees must fall in the 21st century. They still make sense. In today's episode, we turn our attention to the higher education system in the United Kingdom which is currently experiencing a number of conflicts, including strikes by university staff, boycotts by students, and ongoing threats of reduced funding from the state. Our guest is Professor Natalie Fenton, who is a professor in media and communications at Goldsmiths, the University of London. Natalie previously served as the national president of the Association of University Teachers, a union representing academic staff, which has since through merging with other unions, become the University College Union in the UK, as well as being the author of numerous books, most recently Digital Political Radical, which is out with Polity Press this year. Natalie is a long-time academic and media activist. A very warm welcome to you, Natalie. Perhaps we can kick off the conversation by asking you to give us a little bit of a background of, of what's going on in the higher education sector in the UK at the moment. What are the big challenges? What are the issues? What are the things that are concerning staff and students? The context has to begin with a new government paper on higher education. So we've had a green paper and a white paper on higher education in the last year which have sought to further the implementation of recommendations that came through something called the Brown Review several years ago. And that started the process of the kind of full-scale privatisation of higher education in the UK. So you will be aware that we have moved now to a situation of fee-paying for university degrees. We moved to a position of a small amount of fee, and now that fee is up to £9,000 a year for each degree course. And most places are charging that full £9,000. 
The new government initiative on higher education seeks to increase that privatisation by enabling new private providers to come into the university sector, by allowing institutions to charge over the £9,000 fee if they fulfil what's called a teaching excellence framework. And it also changes the nature of governance of higher education institutions. So this is a huge push towards the full-scale kind of marketization. really. It's all about competition. In fact, the white paper, which is the paper which will now be enacted in legislation, has more references to competition than it does to education, riddled through it. So it is a full-scale push to take out any state funding of higher education whilst increasing state control over what we do. So that's the backdrop. And as a consequence of that, with the introduction of fees, universities are increasingly kind of outsourcing a lot of their activities in order to free up capital, I suppose. So, for example, the student halls of residences have largely been sold off to private providers or outsourced. And that means that those rents have increased and the standard of accommodation has generally decreased. So the students themselves, although they're paying enormous amounts of money and having huge debts, and lots of the students are leaving with in excess of £35,000 worth of debt. And there has been estimates that once you consider the interest repayment on those loans, the payback it comes in at over £150,000. So you know, it's a huge amount of debt that students are having to go into to do their higher education. So when they get into a hall of residence, which is their accommodation while they're at university for many of them, that is very substandard and hugely expensive. Then that has caused a major onset of protest amongst that student body in several places. And it's led to rent strikes and really fascinatingly well-organised rent strikes across certain universities and student bodies, which have coordinated actions so that you know nobody can be isolated and they do it en masse. Basically, you refuse to pay rent until the situation is addressed. It is likely to play out even further, I think, in the future. And that's a problem that the university is going to have to deal with and that the students are reacting to very forcefully. The other issue has been in relation to higher education pay and conditions of work. So we have a situation in the UK where we now have a hugely casualised workforce in higher education, lots of people on fixed term, short term contracts, lots of teaching only contracts. And all of this is about universities kind of managing the uncertainty really, that privatisation brings. So without having a block grant that comes from the government and not knowing whether they're going to get those student numbers in year on year, then everything is about tightly coordinating those finances to retain maximum economic flexibility. Whilst that's understandable, it's also hugely retrograde. You get a workforce that is very precarious and transient Um, That's no good for the students and it's certainly no good for research and the educational environment. And the gender pay gap 
between men and women has not decreased. We're seeing that, again, that kind of goes back to old issues around uh, gender divides in the workplace, where many of the women have either taken on lots of the work which is seen as low prestige, low esteem, so taken uh, the you know main role in pastoral and teaching work, while um, many of the men have been rewarded for um, being less collegial and taking much more of the high-level kind of leads and research positions. So that's been a problem. That's, that's exacerbated also by the fact that um, you know, men just in general are more willing to apply for promotions than women are. So you know, there's there's been a whole um, problem with that. At the same time, salaries in general, so this is across all levels, have um, massively decreased in relation, in comparison to all other professions in the UK. So we're seeing a kind of massively demoralised workforce. And that's led to industrial action on behalf of union members in the sector. So we're currently in an industrial dispute over pay, over casualisation and the gender pay gap. And that will continue. And there is no sight at the moment of that being resolved. So uh, currently we have had several... Um, strike actions. We're also operating a work to rule and it is likely to hit marking and assessments in the next term and year coming forward. So we're in a period of, you know, huge uncertainty and instability in the sector and that's reflected in the industrial unrest. So a huge amount of things going on in the UK at the moment. And I'd like to come back to several of the things that you've brought up. But for those listeners who are not that familiar with British politics and the history of higher education in the UK, could you perhaps give us a little bit of insight into how the university sector in the UK got to become fee-paying? So you know, it, it seems like there was a time when students could get free education from the state, and now that's changed. So could you just talk us through how that happened? Sure. Um, the background, when I went to university, there was no such thing as student fees. It was free. And you also got, for those families who couldn't afford for their children to pay their maintenance, they would also get maintenance grants and allowances. There was also a thing called the Educational Maintenance Allowance that enabled students to stay on after school to do their kind of um, high school grades so that they could then apply to university for those families which were poorer and would find that much more difficult to sustain and enable those students to continue in education. So that landscape was a very, very different one. It was, and what's happened, as we have seen with much of the kind of drawback of the welfare state, is higher education was one of the first areas to massively take a hit there. And it's always come over in the UK, at least as the kind of, you know, the poor relative of primary and secondary education, which always in the public mind, and very understandably so, has received the most you know, support and sympathy. 
And when you get to university level education, that has been much harder to campaign for in terms of retaining state input. And largely that's because it's, you know, not everybody goes to university, so it's not a universal provision, yet it was funded through universal taxes and um, general taxation. That was, the argument was one that wasn't fair on everybody. Why should everybody have to pay for a sector that not everybody benefits from? Now, of course, I think that's a deeply flawed argument, but nonetheless, that's how it was run. And we were then left with a situation where with a Labour, so a left-wing Labour government, who initially bought in fees, and that debate at the time was won by a very tiny margin in the House of Parliament. So that vote was minimal. It was, you know, less than double figures. It was um, won by, but it enabled them to introduce a level of fees, which was initially £3,000 per year. And then when the next revisions came along in higher education, that was massively increased to £9,000. And that was welcomed by many of the managers in the university sector because they suddenly thought they were going to get a huge injection of cash. But it's also unleashed a massive amount of uncertainty. And actually, the state funding now for higher education is really very small. You know, the Hefke Teaching Grant, the Higher Education Funding Council, which is part of the government body which manages higher education, only comprises 5% of university income now. And a lot of that is actually provided through the state backing of the student loan system. So it's really tiny. It's no longer a public education service, it's very hard to claim that. That's massively changed the character and nature of working in HE and the sorts of relationship that we have with our students. And how are students responding to these changes? I remember when I was a postdoc in London in 2010, there were huge protests on the streets about proposed fee increases. What's been happening since then? How are students organising? What are the strategies that they're taking forward to try and resist these kinds of marketized practices? The National Union of Students has been very against any increase in fees. Their problem is they are campaigning against very powerful heads of universities who don't have the confidence that if they argue against student fees, then the government will provide the, you know, the drop-in income that they will suffer as a consequence. So the most powerful voices in the university sector come from the wealthiest and um, most elite institutions, the Oxfords and Cambridges of the world. And that's a real problem for the Students' Union. They have been protesting against it. One of the, this teaching excellence framework that I mentioned before, which is a key aspect of the new legislation on higher education, which enables institutions to charge more, rests on a system called the National Student Survey, where students have to assess, they have to evaluate the teaching that they've had within that institution. Now, you would have thought that students would welcome that, but actually they have been very conscious that what this does is simply allows institutions to charge more. And also it's a very blunt tool. It doesn't really measure teaching excellence at all. It's, it's a very strange 
politically designed system that can be very easily gamed by institutions. So they, the NUS have now agreed to boycott the National Student Survey. If the National Student Survey is a key instrument for this teaching excellence framework, which allows universities to charge more money, then that is a really powerful boycott. And my hope is that the university and college union will also support that. So the union themselves will support the boycott of the NSS, which will then make it much more difficult for the teaching excellence framework to come into play and to function properly. So I think that's the the most likely successful form of action that we can take over the next 12 months. And the student union are most definitely very behind that. So an important boycott of these systems that seem to privilege and prefer a private fee charging setup. Also read that in the past couple of years, there have been various occupations by students of university buildings, as well as the rent strikes that have taken place at a number of universities in London in specific. Could you tell us a little more about those particular strategies and how successful you think they were? There have been a number of occupations over a whole range of different issues, and that's largely often in support of things which are going on in institutions, so casualised working or conditions of learning. And they have been really successful. You know, Sussex has had a series of occupations which sometimes aren't well organised. The Sussex one was very well organised. University College London also had a series of occupations that was very successful, that raised awareness of a whole range of issues. It's trying to play that difficult line between we don't want the privatisation of education, but if you are going to privatise and charge these huge fees, then you also have to provide the, um, the conditions of learning that match those fees. And universities are finding that very hard to deal with because actually that £9,000 fees does not cover the full cost of education for a single student. So whilst the privatised system is bringing in a quite consumer-driven argument that you have to make sure that our conditions of learning actually feel like its value for money, at the same time, the universities are having to say, of course, we would love to provide you with beautiful accommodation and exquisite libraries and wonderful teaching environments, but actually those fees don't actually cover the full cost of your learning. So that is incredibly difficult. This is not a situation that is satisfactory for anyone at any level. And the worst case of all is that this new system, because it relies on a process of loans, so what students do is they take out loans to pay the fees, they don't pay the money up front, and then they have to pay back those loans over a period of time once they reach a certain salary in the workplace. Because certain students never reach that salary and never have full employment because of the current economic conditions, the payback to the government is very, very low. So they think that something in the region of 50% of the loans taken will not be paid back. So the nonsense is that the government is paying far more for a higher education system than it was when it was non-fee paying. And that is just a crazy situation that they've got themselves into.
Yeah, it's it's kind of ludicrous. It really is. <laughs> the way you've just described it. And, and students are, of course, the ones who are caught in the middle of this kind of really unjust matrix. And I can imagine that they feel extremely frustrated and that, you know, they graduate with debt that they may never be able to pay off. And at the same time, they, they're being kind of disadvantaged in terms of not getting the full resources that they feel they should be getting. Yeah, I mean, it's whether they... I think the in many institutions, those resources are improving. There's a real stress now on creating a high-quality learning environment for students, um, which is one of the reasons why the staff pay is going down, I have to say. But it's um, but what what the focus is on is is on that kind of you know the the consumables rather than the actual people who are delivering the education themselves. So, you know, there is a, a real argument that you can make, you know, you can provide more computers, you can give better cafes, you can, you know, offer more comfortable lecture theatres. But actually, if you're not, if you have a casual workforce who is vastly demoralised, then actually, which is the better for education? And which is, you know, which, so it... This is what marketization brings about. You know, once you bring in that market structure, what you focus on are those surface things that you can sell easily. And that's look at our glossy campus, look at our beautiful sports facilities, look at our wonderful you know, lecture theatres without saying, oh, and by the way, we haven't increased our staff salary for 18 years and they're all on casual contracts. <laughs> You know, so it's it, it's kind of it, none of it works for the good of education, and it it seems quite hypocritical, in fact, on the part of the university managers and the kind of policymakers to allow that kind of glossy image to be foregrounded when staff are, like you say, demoralised and underpaid. The university management's argument, of course, is that they have to now; they are forced into position of having to attract these students into and you know they call them the customers into the marketplace and they're, they're forced into competition with other institutions so if they don't play that game they're simply you know they will lose the numbers and ultimately staff will lose jobs not only lose pay so that's their argument and you know I have some sympathy with that understanding is the situation that you're in is not easily resolvable because you we've been literally shoehorned into a market you know universities and education is not like selling washing powder or bread it's a very you know education is not a commodity that can be bought and sold in that way it has to be dealt with in a very particular manner and kind of outside of any market structures so applying market principles to something which is actually you know doesn't fit that rubric at all has led us into this really difficult position. Absolutely. Education is a social contract, as a set of relationships that we forge and evolve, right, between staff and students. It's being eroded by this kind of yeah. this scenario that, that you're picturing for us. In relation to that question, I wanted to ask how forms of solidarity between staff and students are being forged, if at all. I'm just thinking in comparison to the South African sector, academic staff often feel caught in between 
the complaints and the protests and the issues that students are raising and university management who often tries to set staff and students up against each other, right? So when students make a strong and valid argument for no fee increases or for no fees, then university management will say, oh, well, then, you know, staff can't get their increases this year. So they kind of try to set us up against each other when, in fact, you know, we're all in the same boat together. And I just wonder how that dynamic plays out in in the UK with all of these current concerns that you've been outlining for us. I think there's a lot of solidarity, actually, between many of the staff and the students' unions. I think everyone recognises that it's an impossible situation and students recognise that actually the best outcome is not to have any fees paid, but they also recognise that actually the money has to come from somewhere for higher education. So that requires a wholesale different approach to higher education, either increasing income tax or corporation tax or something has to increase in order to fund the higher education sector. They understand that. They get that. They are very supportive of the staff actions on increased pay, just as the staff are very supportive of their actions over rent strikes and facilities. And in those institutions where both unions are strong, and that's not all institutions by a, a long way, but where that does happen, then there is a lot of conversation, a lot of collaboration, a lot of collegiality and working together to try and resolve those concerns. So, you know, there's some of those issues, they will come in support of staff to help them take those concerns forward. And likewise, in you know, when we're talking about you know, what it means to introduce a teaching excellence framework, we'll go to the students and say, do you realise you know, where this will take us? So I think it's, it's put students much more actually at the forefront. And I do think that's a good thing. So the focus on students as customers has had it is bad in all ways, but the one thing it has done is it's introduced students into that discussion about how universities are and should be. So many more universities are listening much more closely to the student voice, and I think that's a very good thing. Could you tell us a bit more about some of the strategies that the academic staff unions in the UK are taking in order to resist or somehow progress on some of the problems that you outlined earlier, low pay, precarious labour, gender disparities in pay, and so on. So what, what are some of the strategies and actions that staff are getting involved in to try and, and work on those issues? Well, there's the national industrial action that I mentioned before that is a result of a national ballot. And then there are also institutions which have been involved in more localised industrial actions when people have been um, sacked or made redundant. uh, And we think that that's unjustified. So there's There's been a a whole range of different forms of actions. Over-casualisation has been a big push to make sure that all staff are given equal work for equal value, so are paid in the same rates as those staff on permanent contracts, even if they're still kept on short-term contracts. And and a big push to to see that European legislation over fixed-term working rights is um, enacted. So at the moment, if you you can only be on a fixed term contract 
for a certain period of time before you have to be made permanent. So there's been lots of campaigns to ensure that happens. Of course, we don't know now that we're leaving Europe what those sorts of protective frameworks on working rights, what will happen to them. Um, But we will keep pushing for those sorts of things as well. So there is, there's also been an alternative uh, white paper on higher education, which proposes different ways of doing things at Goldsmiths, where I work, we're trying to push something called the gold paper, which recognises the current situation, but says that, that there are very many things that we can do within that framework that will still uphold the principle of universities of public entities as institutions that are for equality and against inequality, that promotes collegiality and collaborative working are inclusive and diverse, all those sorts of things. So we think there are ways of working locally that can resist some of those national pressures, but also you know, that, that we need to take that action nationally as well. It's ever more difficult because we're in a situation, a political situation in the UK, where the push is constantly with a Conservative government to draw back all the provisions of the welfare state. And, you know, we're we're fighting at the moment to preserve the National Health Service. And that is a much bigger fight, you know, and a much more prominent fight than the one for higher education. And I can imagine that all of these actions and and work that that's being done by you know academic colleagues comes on top of their existing workloads right so i can imagine it's a very stressful and difficult time to be constantly thinking of ways and working together and collaborating locally and nationally to to move forward on on the progressive agenda whilst also keeping on top of your teaching your students your research Sure. I mean, but that, you know what, that's always been the case, I think. And I think it's always difficult to be an activist and keep on with your job in the, in the way that you're expected to. But actually, you know, that for me, those two things have never been separable. So I think it's beholden on everybody to make sure that you are educating the students that come into the sector about all the difficulties that we are having to deal with and that are influencing the form of their education so that they understand those processes and that you are turning them into active citizens rather than just treating them as consumers. So, I mean, it, it is constantly difficult, but I don't see how any form of education can ignore that. And we have to keep taking that back to both to management and back to government to say this is, you know, it's not something that as educators, you can actually hive off, you can't put it in a separate box. So it has to be inbuilt into everything that you do. And um, it's only then it's only then when you're talking about it constantly, and it becomes part of the fabric of an institution that you have these political discussions, that you can actually hope to push change in any way. Absolutely. Very um, inspiring and wise words. One kind of little question about forms of action. I've noticed that in the UK, there's a work to contract kind of strategy. And some listeners might not be familiar with what that means and how it works. Could you explain it to us? Sure. Notionally, we have a working week, which is made up of a number of hours. And in certain institutions that will differ, but on average, that is about a 38-hour working week. And what a work-to-contract means 
is that you will fulfill what is thought of in your institution as a full working week and no more. So the idea is you have to either push everything onto a bit of a slower time frame because you're never going to get through everything you have to do within 38 hours. And you have to start saying no to things because you just can't fit it all in. I mean, you know, the average academic now works between 50 and 60 hours a week. A 38-hour week hasn't been the case for many of us for many years. So if when you're working a 38-hour week, that work to contract means you have to say to people, I'm really sorry, but I can't give you this tomorrow and I can't deliver this particular paper to you within that deadline. And I, I'm afraid I won't be able to mark all those essays within a two-week turnaround. So it puts all sorts of stresses and strains on the system. But you have to keep reminding people that it exists because it's very easy to just slip back into doing what you've always done and work around the clock endlessly because we're all very committed educationalists, of course. And so we're doing this role because we believe in it and we um, are very committed to it you know so it it doesn't come easily to say I'm going to stop working at you know six o'clock in the evening and I'm not going to start until nine in the morning that feels very alien to a lot of people so it's hard work to push but it you know it does mean that actually what we're saying to people is we if you're if you're not going to recognize the value of the work that we do then we're not going to go that extra mile for you we are actually going to do what we need to do within those working hours and no more. Yeah, sounds like a very smart approach. And has it had an impact on university managers? Have they responded to it? I think it's um, they try and ignore that it's happening altogether, actually. And it does require quite a fastidious response on behalf of academics because you have to constantly remind people that this is why I'm not doing it this is why I'm not responding this quickly and you know it it becomes quite difficult to do but and I don't think that on its own would bring about change I think that has to be part of a whole range of other actions and sadly because we're in a situation where the student voice is now so important it's usually the actions that have an impact on the students that will force the institutions to do something. So that's when you get into, you know, sort of assessment boycotts, where you say, I'm simply not going to return these marks. And so these students won't graduate until you address this issue. Um, And then, of course, those students who are paying the fees and who they are trying to, uh, you know, potential students that they're trying to attract into the sector in the future, once they start getting angry, then universities are much more likely to listen Students understand that that's the case and that the damage that will be inflicted on them will be very um, short-lived and very reluctantly undertaken. But it seems that often that is the only way we can get any response from the institution. So do you think the industrial action from academic staff in the UK is going to be leading in that direction in the, in the year ahead? I think it will. This moves already to go towards an assessment boycott. It's not yet fully agreed, but there it's being talked about. Well, well, we'll watch that with interest. You mentioned briefly the influence of the European Union on some of the strategies that the union's taking forward. I wonder if you have <laughs> perhaps 
yourself and colleagues are tired of talking about this topic, I imagine <laughs> you might be. But any thoughts uh, for those of us outside of Europe on, on what the implications of Brexit, of Britain leaving the European Union, will have on the higher education sector and on students and, and staff members? Yeah, it could be devastating for the higher education sector. We really don't know. I mean, there are two areas where it, it's really problematic. One is free movement of European students. So if students who currently reside in Europe are treated exactly the same as our home students, if that changes, then suddenly it will become much more expensive to come to the UK for European students to do a degree or a higher degree. So they are less likely to come, frankly. They can go elsewhere for far cheaper. So we will have a big dip in student numbers, but not only student numbers, we will suffer because of the lack of internationalization on our campuses massively and the cultures, different cultures that that brings to us. Um, it is also a problem for staff who are European and are allowed that free movement of labor within the UK and suddenly that will change and that will, you know, Goldsmiths, 38% of our workforce are European. So that would be a huge issue for universities themselves. And then you have the issue of European research funding. The research funding in the UK has dropped year on year. And one of the reasons we've been able to continue doing research to any reasonable level is because of European funded programs. And we don't know whether we will have access to those once Brexit has happened. So at the moment, we are in a situation of huge uncertainty over the whole thing, which is adding extra stress and strains to a system where they're now going to go through a whole new legislative framework for higher education on top of all that uncertainty, which seems total madness. So we're going to have a, a you know, a kind of double whammy going on in the sector where no one will have a clue how anybody is going to do. And actually, I can only see that leading to some very detrimental outcomes. And it will be a case of the strongest surviving. And everybody is incredibly anxious about that within the sector. So very complex and challenging time at the moment in the, in the UK university system. It is. Is there anything um, that you wanted to, to touch on or add that I haven't had a chance to ask you about or that you haven't had a chance to say? Um, you know, maybe just to say that what all of this has done is force a conversation within institutions about the whole process and what's going on. So it is, although it is incredibly challenging place to be in and there are actions that are going on, you know, all of this actually has means that it, it's, it's a, an immensely interesting place to be and be part of. And all of the academics, of course, are working incredibly hard to make sure that um, all of their, uh, the educational facilities and provisions that they are part of are still working very well. So, you know, my colleagues around the UK are all working incredibly hard and we're still all very proud of the kind of educational service we provide but these struggles are very real and I think you know we won't be alone these are going to the privatization of higher education is going to hit very many places ar around the world if it's not there already so watch closely 
South Africa and the UK still have close ties educationally speaking. Many academic staff in SA studied in the UK, and many students still aspire to go and complete degrees over there. It's been really interesting to hear how colleagues and students over the seas in England are struggling with some very familiar sounding challenges. Let's hope that we can work towards building more international solidarity in our struggles against the marketization of public universities. Uh, hi, I'm Shemaine. I'm studying speech and hearing therapy. I'm Gemma and I'm also studying speech and hearing therapy. I think it's important to find the middle ground, near find some way that the students can afford to get the education, but at the same point, the um, the government can actually afford to give it to you. You can't expect like free education if you co- they're not expecting you to pay it. So you need to find that middle ground, reaching both parties at an equal place. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's important to look at what students can pay because a lot of students, um, I know that they're on bursaries or their parents are paying for them, so they can't really pay for a lot. But I also think it's very important to take in consideration the type of country you live in. So in a place like America, which is a first world country, they're not even doing free education. They can't. They can't afford to. And I think Germany has free tertiary education, if I remember correctly. And it took them years to get that right. But if you look at their economy and their history and the things that they've had to do to get there, we're nowhere near that. And neither is England. They've just done the Brexit. So they're still doing the financial um, deficit from that alone is taking a huge impact so these students, they have to kind of put it into perspective. Yes, it's important that they're doing it, and I'm, I'm glad that they are. I'm glad we are raising attention. It's awesome. But we have to take into consideration where your country is financially and just in the world in general. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interest of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mehita Ikani. Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by Balungi Limbenyane. Thanks to Natalie Fenton, David, Charmaine and Gemma for their time. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingles. 